0: So have you ever thought about how redundant redundancy is? Okay, so, so what is redundancy? Well, it depends on which category of conversation you're in. A uh, British person might say that redundancy is the fact that a factory employee doesn't have a job because there's no work at the factory. In other words, there's a redundancy of workers, but there's not enough work. In engineering, redundancy means that You have your initial components that you put in something, but then you put some secondary components in, uh, some backup, so to speak, in case the initial ones go out. So there's some redundancy in parts and components. But generally speaking, for the rest of us, if we're not British and we're not in engineering, then redundancy usually just means something that's unnecessary, something that's extra, something that's superfluous. I'm just glad I said that right. Superfluous. You know, something that's just not needed. All right, for example, let's imagine you're with one of your snack buddies and, and you're in a shop somewhere and you turn to your buddy and you say, you know what? Man, there sure are a lot of donuts in this donut shop that's full of donuts. Now, philosophically this is hard for me to say out loud, but but that's too many donuts. It's just just way too many donuts in, in one sentence. It's redundant. It would be enough for you just to say, you know what, they, they have a lot of donuts. But you don't have to use a lot of words to be redundant either. I came across this sentence this week. The army marched forward. Have you ever seen an army of ants marching backward? No, that's, that's not how it works. So, so it's redundant in a way to say marching forward. That's what marching would do. You would be marching forward. So in a, in a general sense... The the primary definition, the primary idea behind redundancy is it's something that's not needed, something that's no longer needed, something that's not useful, something that's superfluous. There is another kind, though, of redundancy. Not the the kind that's not needed, not the kind that we see and say, well, there's way too many words there or or there's too many extras or or not enough or, or way too much. It's a different kind of redundancy. It's a redundancy in a different conversation. In fact, it's the kind of redundancy that is desperately needed. It's always needed. It's always useful. And it is just plain super. And it impacts your life more than anything else that you can imagine on a daily basis. What kind of redundancy is that? Let's find out. Psalm 23, the very last part of verse 5. My cup overflows. David's writing a song of praise, a song of comfort, a song of challenge. He's, He's writing a song of confidence in the Lord. He is ecstatic that he is a sheep in the flock of the good shepherd which makes this one little part of this song a a little bit strange, right? Because I've never seen a a sheep carrying a a Yeti cup. So I think he kind of messed up here, right? Well, what is this about the cup? Well, see, actually, this little three-letter word is fantastic because it helps us to see that this isn't just some fancy, pretty shepherd poem in the Bible. My daughter, on her first birthday, instead of having just a normal cup, we... We had a special little birthday cup, and it was a little birthday. Now, my daughters are looking at each other. I have no idea which one of you it was. Sorry. I just remember the cup. So, so it was a little white cup, and, and it had little handles on the side. And I think the top was blue, but Karen would tell me it was green because I have colorblind issues. But it was some color on top, and then there was a little sippy spout that came up, and, and then on the front were these really, really bright letters that just said, First First Birthday. So, so that was the little cup that we had for her birthday party. Now, now, she could have, you know, had any cup, but we got her a special little sippy cup for her birthday party. Now, what if she didn't have a cup at all? I mean, what if we just, you know, poured out her special birthday juice on the tray of the, you know, the, the high chair and just said, hey, you know, lick it up like a puppy, you know? I mean, I guess at one, you know, she might have done that. Or or what if we said, you know what, we've got some really special birthday berry juice for you, and 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 you can have some if you have a cup but if you don't have a cup you know you can't have any or what if we were to say this hey maybe you can use some of your birthday money to go buy a cup and then you come back with a cup and we'll give you the juice yeah that kind of stuff is not going to win you any gold medals at the old parenting olympics that's not what you would do to a one-year-old you would keep the nice cup in front of them or what if it's not a one-year-old What if you're an allied soldier on a mission in North Africa during World War II and and you discover there's a hole in your canteen? Your your ability to have water has just disappeared in some ways. Or what if you're a refugee or through a, a natural disaster or some other means you find yourself homeless and you're in a soup line and you get up to the point it's finally your turn to get the soup and you discover that they ran out of soup cups with the person that's right in front of you in line. You see, a a normal, average, everyday cup has tremendous power just because of what it can do. So don't miss this picture. When David writes of the cup, what he's communicating is this. When a person repents, when a person turns to Christ, when a person receives his salvation, one of the first pieces of equipment that person is given is a cup. Not a Yeti, not a Sippy, Not a canteen, not a soup cup. But he's given a a spiritual cup. A cup for the heart and the mind and the soul. It's a cup that can always be filled up all the time at any time. It's a cup that can be filled up when one of the main lines to your house explodes and you create a lazy river for your neighborhood unexpectedly. Yes, that's how my week ended. Or... It's a cup that can be filled up when your accountant says that you were off in your guesstimate and you still owe $1,900 on your taxes. Too many personal illustrations I'm sharing? All right, I'll shift gears. See, this this is a cup that can transform your attitude and your demeanor in the hardest moments of life and the hardest days of life how? This is what Paul told the folks at a place called Ephesus, Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, remember. You know, for some of us who may have grown up in the church, we we may not remember. We may have forgotten. Maybe we didn't really completely grasp what it means to be lost. We didn't come to Christ with this sense of, of damnation and condemnation and, and desperation hanging over our heads. We, we came to Christ because it was a natural and, and supernatural response to, to just being around the Gospel. And that's okay. That's a, that's a good thing if you actually came to Christ. But if your response to the gospel was just because that's what the other kids at camp were doing. Or if your response to the gospel was because your, your parents said, well, join in the church, that's a, that's a right thing to do. Or if your response to the gospel was because the, the preacher said, hey, Jimmy Jay, don't you think it's about time you got baptized, buddy? Then it's possible that you are not in Christ. That you are not saved. That you're not a believer. Now that doesn't mean that you have to question your salvation, but it, but it does mean these words from Paul, they need to bring you low every now and then. Remember, remember, you were separated from Christ, separated from true grace and true mercy and true hope and true love. You were excluded from the family of God. You were a lost desperate orphan you were a stranger to heaven you did not have a shred of hope for the moment that you die and the Lord was not your shepherd remember and even if you don't Remember remember this, that the Bible says that what happened to you was that the Spirit quickened your heart and your mind and your soul to hear and respond to the gospel and to become convinced that you had fallen short of the glory of God, that you did not match up. And even if you can't remember feeling them or or hearing the rattling, remember that you were chained to sin and remember that your chains are gone. This is what Peter said, First Peter two ten. For you once were not a people, but now now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just just think about that that moment. You, there's a reality here. Without Christ, you are you're nothing. Even if what you can remember is that you were a fairly decent kid who kind of obeyed your parents and and went to church with them, even if that's your story, you were still dead in your sins. You were a, a corpse of sin and rebellion laying in a canyon of darkness. That's why we come to Holland Avenue. He always says those encouraging things. But it's true. This, This is how the scripture says our life exists apart from Christ. And so in the darkness, then the scripture comes through with this amazing truth. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The darkness is real, but so is the transfer into his marvelous light. And what does all that mean? Well, here's what it means. I love the simplicity of how Spurgeon puts it. You have a cup. You have a cup. You are no longer separated. You are no longer excluded. You are no longer a a lost, desperate orphan. You are no longer outside of God's family. You no longer have no hope at the moment of death. You have great and eternal hope. And now the Lord is your shepherd. You have a cup. You see a believer in the morning and at night and all day long can keep whispering and shouting to himself or herself, I, I have a cup. I I have a cup. And how do we get this cup? Well, we get this cup through another cup. A few hours before he was arrested and crucified, Jesus was praying in a garden on the eastern side of Jerusalem, and this is what he prayed, Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine. My father... If it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is, he's on his face in prayer. Father, please let this cup pass. What does he mean? Well, he's not primarily praying because he's overwhelmed with death on the cross. It's not the cross that he's wanting to pass. Death on the cross was, was the plan. So it's not just a, a primary fear over the cross because this was what he was going to do all along. So, so why? Why this pleading prayer? God, would you let the cup pass? Well, here's why. See, Jesus was no longer in the manger. He was no longer in the carpenter shop. He was no longer teaching from village to village. He was no longer preaching about the kingdom of God. All of those times had passed, and now the time had come. The time for him to go to the cross, the the time for him to be crucified. And there's no way that we can fathom the pain that Jesus endured. From what history tells us and from what we see in the scripture, Jesus would have been nailed to the cross with with what we would think as railroad ties, his hands and his feet to these huge timbers. And crucifixion was designed to to suffocate a person. So so Jesus would have to push up with his feet just to have breath. And every time he pushed up the the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet, they they would send excruciating pain throughout his body. And then you add to that the the crown of thorns in his head with with inch or or longer thorns pressed into his head. You add to that the the spear that was shoved into his side and, and we get this brutal picture of the death of Jesus that's really beyond our comprehension and that we need to sit and remember and think of more often. And he suffered all this alone. His closest friends, they abandoned Him. People that He loved and created shouted, crucify Him. But it wasn't the loneliness that threw Jesus down on the ground in the garden praying. It wasn't the abandonment of His friends. And it wasn't the the torturous death on the cross. No, when Jesus asks the Father to let the cup pass, it was something completely different. See, he knew what was going to happen on the cross. It wasn't the death. See, Jesus knew he was going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. He knew that, that he was going to be the one and only universal scapegoat for sin. That the curse that belongs to us was going to fall to him. Like Duncan writes, he looks into this white hot volcano of the justice of God and he realizes that he is the one who will stand in between for his people. And he feels something of the weight of the penalty for that sin. He was becoming overwhelmed with the curse. Remember, Jesus did not just die as as an example to us. He died as our penal substitute. He took our place, the place that we deserved, he took. On purpose, planned even from the foundations of the world, Jesus separated himself from the smile of his Father to rescue selfish, bitter, Wretched, wandering sinners like me and like you. Rightly, did Isaac Watts ask, did air such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? And the answer to this question is no. No, this, this has never happened. There's absolutely no one and nothing like Jesus on the cross. No, we've never seen anything like it. On the cross, Jesus drained the cup of the curse completely so that people like me and you can keep whispering to ourselves, I have a cup, I have a cup. And what does God do with this cup? Listen again to what David says, my cup overflows. What does that mean? Well, let's answer that by saying what it doesn't mean. An overflowing cup does not mean that your favorite coffee joint is going to give you free refills for the rest of your life on your macho chinos just because you're a Christian. That's, that's not going to happen. That's not what it means to have an overflowing cup. And An overflowing cup doesn't mean that the water lines at your house might not break and force you to wash what little hair you have left in the sink at work. You know That, that, that is no promise so that an overflowing cup is going to provide you perfect water. An overflowing cup does not mean that the new school year is going to please you. An overflowing cup does not promise you that you're going to love and be pleased with the new gas prices. An overflowing cup does not mean that you're going to be pleased with your order at the restaurant. An overflowing cup does not mean that your surgery is going to go as planned. An overflowing cup doesn't mean that the medicine is going to work. An overflowing cup doesn't mean that you're never going to be in a wreck in your car. An overflowing cup doesn't mean that your politicians are going to honor their promises. An overflowing cup doesn't mean that your kids are going to honor their parents. And an overflowing cup doesn't mean your spouse is going to honor their vows. That's not an overflowing cup. Imagine you're at a a Bible study or, or maybe a a book club or or maybe out on a pontoon boat with a bunch of your friends one weekend and someone says, y'all, y'all, we just closed on our new house. And our old house, it sold in 98 seconds after we put it on the market. And it, and it sold for $5,000 more than what we were asking. And on our new house, the builder, he messed up on the paint in the bathroom. He, he painted it blush instead of bashful. And, and since they messed up, they built us an in-ground pool in the backyard with a huge slide just to say they were sorry. Oh, we are so blessed. Ever been in that conversation? <laughs> No. (laughs) Something kind of like that, close to that, happened to Sheila Dougal. She is a wife and mom and nurse in Arizona. And this was her response. It was at a Bible study. She says this, owning a nice house with a spacious kitchen or driving a shiny car with no dents or basking in financial abundance in easygoing circumstances are not reliable evidences of God's blessing." In this age, the formula might look attractive in a movie, but it contradicts both the Bible and the real life experience of many struggling saints who are faithful in the challenges, insecurities, and pains of everyday life. She goes on God's common kindness reaches us all, but it takes saving grace to turn to Jesus when marriage is hard when my friend loses three babies, or when a young missionary is told he has end-stage cancer. The Bible doesn't offer a formula but points us to a Savior, a battered, crushed, beaten, bruised, bloodied Savior. And the special blessing of God's presence is with those who are walking in suffering the same road Jesus himself walked. He is present in the path of pain and the path of trial and the path of heartache. That's what it means to have a cup that overflows Not that everything is going to be peachy king, but that you cannot be separated from the perfect king. It is impossible. See, the truth of the cup and the truth of the gospel is that there is not a moment of my life or your life as believers that we cannot look at the cross and see that in the crucifixion and the resurrection, we have historical and spiritual realities, and we cling to those, and we hold up our empty cup, and we let God pour the gospel in again, and then we look up, and from the bottom of our soul, we sing and we shout, you stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes, and there may be pain in the night, but joy will come in the morning, and one day that joy will come on the morning after I die and I will no longer care about the color of my bathroom because I will be with Jesus. Dear Christian, you have a cup. You have a cup. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. She had been in and out of miserable relationships her whole life. She didn't have five failed marriages. She, I mean, she didn't have one failed marriage, she had five failed marriages. And the relationship she was in at the time, the guy wasn't even her husband. People in town gossiped about her and they avoided her, didn't want to have anything to do with her. She was broken, she was hurt, she was full of pain. Her heart was dirty and her heart was, was just desperate and despair. And then she bumped into this stranger, and the stranger made a really odd offer to her. The stranger was Jesus, and this was the offer. John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. She had never heard anything like that before. I mean, she had a a lot of promises that she heard people make to her, but she had never heard anything like that. And she found herself just almost desperately saying, sir, sir, please give me this water. I am so thirsty. I am so dry. I am so broken. My life is full of failure. I am filled with despair. Please, please give me this water. For the first time in her life, She knew she was hearing words of real hope and real peace, real joy, real life, real love. And what happened after she talked to Jesus? John 4, verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water pot and she went into the city and she said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. At first glance, this may not seem like a real big deal. I mean... She met Jesus, and she went and told somebody about Jesus. Hey, that's evangelism. We talk about that all the time, right? But, but it's different for her. See, this woman went to the well at a weird time because the ladies in the city, they despised her. So she avoided them at all cost. The men in the city, most of them, thought she was a dirty, sinful, immoral woman. And the ones that didn't, they were kind of arrogantly and foolishly thinking that she might be their next wife. No one in the city respected her. They despised her. And yet, where did she go after she met Jesus? She she went to the city. She, She went to the people who hated and despised her, who rejected her. Why would she do that? Here's why. She put her water pot down. And why did she do that? Because Jesus gave her a cup. And she went running to the city with her new cup. And her cup was so overflowing with the grace and the hope and the mercy and the love and the truth of Jesus that it drowned out all of her hurt and all of her pain and all of her shame and all of her rejection. And it spilled over with all of that grace and all of that truth into the lives of people who hated and rejected and despised her. She walked into the city in a way that she had never walked into the city before. There was a spring in her step because she was whispering to her soul, I have a cup. Charles Spurgeon said this, think of the full cup which Jesus holds to your lip. Contrast it with your former poverty when you were ready to perish in despair and rejoice this morning that you have a royal cup to drink from, which will never fail you. And then he says this, our portion is no longer that of the forlorn or the degraded. We do not pine in despair or wallow in pollution, but we sit as children at the table, drinking with joy from our allotted cup. Do you have that allotted cup? Do you have a cup? if not please know the offer from jesus has never changed repent turn to him come to him drink and never thirst again and if you have already found that cup then please know this you have a place at the table you have a place at the table. And your cup was designed to overflow with hope constantly. So drink. Drink and enjoy the redundancy. The beautiful redundancy of your salvation. You have a cup. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul.